Hello and welcome to this episode of Uncancelled and Unplugged, uh, the podcast that provides a platform for experts and thought leaders who would otherwise be expected to expecting right now to be on a stage somewhere sharing their ideas and uh, experiences. But like uh, so many of us have found work cancelled, etc. So um, great to be joined today uh, to have with us today Camille Dundas. Uh, we're going to be talking about an issue that's, uh, I think, should be front and centre of everyone's mind right now, even, you know, despite all the chaos and uncertainty we're living with, and that is the issue of diversity, inclusion and belonging. Uh, Camille is a, a diversity, equity and inclusion consultant, and also the founder of buyblacks.com. So um, we're going to, uh, we're pleased to have uh, have Camille with us today, and we're going to kick off, as usual, with with asking our guest. You know, what was the core of their message that they were they they've been delivering in in, in their field uh, in the last little while, and that they'd sort of anticipated sharing with audiences uh, this uh, this spring, but but now aren't able to. So, Camille, what's 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 been the uh, the, the thrust of your your work lately? Hey, everyone listening, and John, thanks so much for having me on today. Um, the core of my message has been always been about intersectionality. All of my talks are rooted in intersectionality. And if you haven't heard that term before, it really just refers to the fact that none of us are defined by one aspect of our identity. We are made up of several different parts um, of an identity. And when we show up at work, our best selves are able to up, to show up at work when our employer or our workplace or our work environment is able to recognize and validate all those different parts of our identity um, instead of putting us into a box of either gen, just gender or just race or just abilities. Um, so that's what I've been talking about for the past year and what I was anticipating doing for the, for the rest of the year as well. Um, but it's interesting that with this crisis, the the message, I think, of intersectionality will go even further um, to look at ways that people work. And I think that what this crisis has revealed very abruptly is all the different um, ways that people all the different supports that people need in order to function in their lives that we have previously been comfortable with ignoring. Right, and I know I know one of the things that uh, that you've been emphasising in your work, and something which I've seen in 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 uh, in the events that I've worked on in in the states on diversity and inclusion, is this shift to speaking a lot more about belonging, that notion of belonging in 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 in, in organisations. Can you maybe just share a little bit about how that that intersectionality plays into this notion of belonging, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about how things have changed and how organization or you know leaders can can respond to that yeah if if i don't feel if if i don't feel that i'm being seen as a whole person i will never feel like i belong anywhere and when i say that i mean if i'm attending work and it's women's month and i'll tell you personally and i talk about this in in my keynotes i stopped attending women's only events a long time ago, because for the most part, those events tend to focus on the needs primarily of white women, because they 
are very comfortable talking about gender, but not comfortable talking about the, the additional burdens that racialized women face in the workplace. And so I don't feel like I belong in those conversations because what they're telling me is that, yeah, okay, we're comfortable with talking about the part of you that we want to acknowledge, but not comfortable talking about the way that your blackness affects you at work or the way that your experience at work is informed by your race and your gender. So that's where intersectionality and belonging um, come come together. Or and, and this, yeah. So and this this really sort of plays that notion of of and I hear it a lot in the in the in in the work I do in workplace culture that's sort of separate or, or that's obviously connected to diversity. This notion of bringing your whole self to work that that that, that that's a sort of a um, um, that's a sort of a goal I think of of a lot of of, uh, of cultures is to is to feel that people can be their whole selves. So that's very much connected, right? Absolutely. And I think that what this, what this crisis, again, I'll use the word revealing. Um, it's like all of the things that certain people have been clamoring for or have been advocating for at work. Um, parents with small children advocate for more flexible um, work schedules, advocate for work from home. Um, people with disabilities advocate for um, being able to work differently and on different types of technologies um, have been easily ignored. And now suddenly and saying, oh, you know, we can't afford this or, or it's not, it doesn't work for us, it's not practical. And now suddenly it's all practical and it's all working. And, and all these companies are able to implement all of these things only because they now don't have a choice. Yeah, and I do feel from you know from even from the work I'm doing, um, and I've worked remotely for for a number of years, it mm-hmm. is certainly getting to know colleagues a lot better. I mean, in, in, and in a more sort of holistic way, and I'm, I'm gaining a, a greater appreciation of their of the challenges that they were having, sort of off stage, as it were, that have now been been uh, been sort of put in the spotlight. So you, you see that as a as a positive thing for for DNI, right? I absolutely do, and and I, I think it's so ironic that we're getting to know each other better by being physically farther apart. <laughs> I think if, if we stop and think about that, of, of how crazy that is, uh, you know, we'll realize what a lot of what we were doing wrong all this time. You know, um, if you even look at and just to step aside um, from from the workplace for a second, um, if you look at the way that communities around the world are responding to this. Um, you're seeing a, a, an increased level of humanity. Of course, we've all seen uh, the images coming out of Italy with people singing in the balconies and whatnot, but there is so much humanity coming out with people who were already isolated, already shut in, and their neighbors stepping up to suddenly form groups that are delivering groceries, that are delivering um, uh, uh, medication. I'm seeing all these groups pop up, all these startups um, happening of people starting from a, a, from a grassroots um, um, uh, base as opposed to waiting for the government to do something. There's all kinds of communities of people popping up to do good. And now similarly in the workplace, we're responding with humanity. I'm even, you know, I I still um, work as a consultant at a tech firm here in Toronto, and I'm learning all kinds of things about my colleagues that I I never knew before. Um, One of of my colleagues has elderly parents in the UK, and I didn't know about that because he told me that they begged him to come back from the US to the UK. 
and he did so and was very emotional, broke down crying because even though he came back at their request, he couldn't see them for 10 days because he had to go into quarantine. And that was just breaking him. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I never knew like the relationship that he had with them. And, and it was a real vulnerable moment. And similarly, now that we're all having these meetings over Zoom, et cetera, and people have their cameras on, you're getting some type of glimpse into that person's life outside of work. You're getting a glimpse into their whole self now, right? And right. again, the things, the types of you know accommodations or the types of things that people need to work that have been ignored before, you're seeing now. So you know, I, I was saying that you know we were having a, a meeting now, and I'm seeing my director with his uh, daughter on on his lap. I'm seeing one of my coworkers who is um, single, um, but has uh his his best friend and roommate is is his dog and he has that dog lovingly on his lap petting him hugging him throughout the whole meeting and me seeing the bond that he has with his pet gave me a greater appreciation for people who who's a big part of their whose whose pets are a big part of their lives and i actually I'll admit that's something that was a blind spot for me. Like when people talk about wanting to bring their dogs to work or wanting to work in an environment that's pet friendly, to be honest with you, that's something I kind of dismiss. Like, okay, really? But yeah. now <laughs> that that was a blind spot for me. And now I'm seeing how much that means to someone because I can see it with my own eyes through that camera. Right. And, I, and I, I mean, I love the way you've put a, a, a positive spin on this, and, and absolutely, I, I, I'm 100 percent with that. But we also see, you know, the the fights over toilet rolls and um, and other <laughs> things going on, which are sort of sort of. I mean, I think these things, situations like this, you know, do bring out the best in people, but also sometimes the worst. And we're all we're all complicated human beings. I mean, what what sort of conscious steps do you do you sort of counsel people, uh, leaders particularly, to employ? To ensure that this the 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 situation we're in now is an opportunity to deepen that sense of belonging for people who maybe were feeling excluded before, or or where there's a risk of them now, you know, feeling 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 left out. Yeah, um, there's there's a real risk in that for sure. Um, I think the key to 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 make to helping ensure that everyone feels included and that they belong is number one an acceptance of the situation we're in, an acceptance of the fact that while, if we're lucky, we'll be able to come to our offices again, we'll be able to go out to the malls again, but nothing will ever be the exact same as it was before COVID-19. Once we accept that and we're honest about that, the transparency, number one, from leadership goes a long way in helping people feel that they are in a place that they feel safe. Belonging has a lot to do with safety. So the first thing that leaders need to be aware of is creating some type of psychological safety for all the people that they're working with. That's never been more important. Once you have your psychological safety, people are then able to feel safe to share. When they start sharing the way that they're feeling, then the third thing you need is to have a, a, a supportive, sensitive, listening ear. Now, this is key because many people in leadership positions feel the knee-jerk reaction to solve and to 
give tips on how to get through this, right? But really, we need to lead with empathy and compassion and asking more questions when someone is unloading emotionally on you, as opposed to saying, okay, well, you know what? You just need to get some more rest. You just need to keep positive and everything's going to be okay. Instead, ask them, hey, what else is going on with you? And what they really need is just to talk. They just need to know that someone's there for them, that they're in a safe place that they can talk. And yes, we will, we will offer tips, we'll offer support, we'll offer uh, mental health uh, supports, we'll offer counseling, et cetera. But as your leader, when you're having those one-to-ones with your, with your um, team, team members, just be a listening ear. That in itself goes a long way in making people feel included and that they belong, that everyone gets listened to. Yeah, and, and I think that's something that, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I remember someone a, a while ago at a conference saying, you know, the three ha- hardest words for any leader to say are, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're in a situation now where none of us know, right? And we know our leaders don't know, but we still look to our leaders to tell us that they do know because we desperately need some sort of sort of reassurance. Um, mm-hmm. And perhaps that reassurance is 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 more about it's not about providing answers but just about about providing a sense of security and and permission and 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 a sort of a welcoming sense of belonging uh, and that's quite a shift i think for a lot of leaders right it's a huge one and i'll, and I'll give an example from from hootsuite where i work as a consultant and you know on our, one of our um c-level leaders uh called everyone together and we had a meeting and you know he's in charge of revenue so he was very real um, about what we may or may not be facing. He gave very transparent numbers, but he was also realistic about the fact that he can't possibly, the, the leadership team can't possibly know today how this is, is going to affect our business. He gave a realistic timeline as to when they might know more as to how this is affecting our timeline, our uh, business. But then he also said, don't feel we're in sales. So he said, don't feel pressured today to go out and like, you know, sell all you can and do whatever you have to do to close a deal. You know what he said? He said, this morning, take a nap. And I'm telling you, those three words coming from a C-level leader meant the world to that, to, to the entire team to hear that. Yeah, I, I know. I, I watch. Um, I my main client is in New York, and I know a lot of people in New York. So I, I feel personally invested in what happens there in a way that I, I don't think I would have felt a few years ago. But I mean, I watch Como's um, um, briefings, mm-hmm. even though you know th- these are not cheerful, good, good news um, <laughs> sessions. Sure. But you feel here's someone who is who cares mm-hmm. and who is telling the truth to the extent that he knows it to be at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I find that even I don't even I find that reassuring, even though I'm not I'm not living there or it, what he does doesn't doesn't really affect me. But that but that kind of leadership I think is um, you know, I think it's interesting to see, and it's the sort of thing people people can kind of look at that as as in some ways a bit of a model anyway. Um, although obviously in, being an employer is different from being a governor, etc. Mm-hmm. So um, so that's 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 kind of kind of important I think. Um, so you've a you, couple of times you've mentioned, um, you know, that we're not going to go back to normal, and I, and I think you know the longer this goes on, the 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 the, the, the more people will will, will recognise that. 
um, if they if they if they don't already. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've just seen just in casual conversation with folks in D, folks in DNI is is a sort of a, a, a re-emphasis on, on on the business case. This feeling that you know because businesses obviously are are going to be very careful where they spend money, you know, when, when this ends, if they if they if they have any left, and, and trying to make make that sort of case for DNI. And I know that's something that you've you, you know you've touched on before. What what how do you see that issue change? You know, how, how does what's happening now influence that argument? Uh, and what other changes do you think will 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 happen as we as we sort of transition out of this into a world where we can we can go outside and meet face to face and and get back to some. Uh, yeah. you know, to suddenly a more normal world. I think that, again, I'll use the word revealing because I think that this crisis is going to reveal the the things that we were doing that weren't even efficient in the way that we were delivering DNI training. The changes that we should have made long before uh, this crisis came about in the sense that, you know, our human default, right, based on how society has evolved to educate ourselves is we take an information approach, right? An awareness approach. We, we have a problem and we say, okay, we're going to get everyone in a room. We're going to pay someone to stand in front of them for two hours and tell them about all these issues. And then they're going to be aware and then they're going to change their behavior. And that's how we've approached DNI, right? We have our three hour or our eight hour, um, you know, DNI training sessions. We, and usually it's in response to some crisis that's happened. We've seen it with Sephora. We've seen it with Starbucks. You know, they closed their whole offices for a day, put up a big sign saying, oh, we're doing DNI training today. So we've got this covered. When really instead, we should have been taking a behavioral approach in terms of trying to actually change people's habits. The way that we change behavior is by changing our habits. And science tells us that the way that we change habits is not through um, like an information dump our brains will actually, at the end of any session, forget 60% of what we learn or more. But yet we continue to do these one-day, heavy, like three-hour learning sessions. Science shows us that spaced learning is more effective. So learning small bits of information, maybe six to 10 minutes um, every week or over a course of um, a year even, is more effective for changing behavior. And so... If we can find a way to deliver um, DNI training in a spaced environment, as well as giving immediate feedback and discussion about why we've chosen to behave in certain ways. And also the key part is making sure that it's relevant to people and making sure that engagement will never be more important now. Now that we have to shift everything online. We have to make sure it's engaging. And the way we make sure it's engaging is by making sure it's relevant to people, that people can see themselves in the situations and think, okay, how would I react to this? And get and get and collaborate with other people and hear how, how they're responding and gauge their response. And they have to practice it. it you have to practice a change behavior. If you just ha- attend a one-day training, it may take you, you know, years before you're faced with a microaggression or faced with something where you can put that training into practice, right? But if you're being delivered um, tr- bite-sized trainings over a longer period of time, then you can practice that over and over. And then you're, it, it's more likely that your behavior will change. Yeah. 
And, and I think maybe you know, in, in light of some of the things you've said earlier as well, that people will be um, sort of more open to having meaningful uh, DNI discussions than maybe they were before, as mm-hmm. as they've come to know their coworkers better and uh, um, and and gone through this, um, you know, gone through the, the the current crisis together. That that hopefully will have some kind of bonding effect. One would hope, right? I think it already has. And I think, though, that leaders should be very wary of the temptation to deprioritize diversity, inclusion, and belonging activities. Because I truly believe that the way that we respond to diversity and inclusion, and especially belonging, will be a marker of how successful we are at weathering this new change. When we look back, those who prioritized inclusion, those who prioritized feelings of belonging, I think we'll see that they were the ones who really rose to the challenge of being successful during this crisis. Yes, I, I think I think I think you're right there. I think another way that that um, and I posted a bit of a, a good piece on on LinkedIn uh, this week about it that. You know, this will will be a moment in which in which employers will be judged of, of how you know how they behaved and, and how they treated people at this point, and equally so each 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 leader within an organisation and indeed our, our colleagues. So, um, you know, we have a we have a we have a challenge. Uh, ch- we all have a challenge ahead of us, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, um, but I think your your message of, of focusing on on the belonging is something that. Uh, you know, this greater emphasis on on organisations as as communities versus just um, you know collections of people who you know have certain values in common or whatever the whatever that common ground is defined as. Um, so, any any final thoughts before we uh, before we wrap up here? Anything you'd, you'd like to share a message or? Um... Yeah, I just I love that organisations as communities. I really love that. Because if we're able to to see people as beyond their productivity, you know, see yeah. their value beyond just their productivity. Because if usually at work, that's all we look at, right? We look at what's your output. You're as good as your latest deal, right? <laughs> and and yes. if you're not performing, then you're not valuable to us. But now we're being forced to see people beyond their productivity. Now we're being forced to see people as a parent, as a spouse, as a, a, as a son who's taking care of an older parent. And so looking at people in their entirety, looking beyond just their productivity as value, who are they to our company as people? Well, I think that's a, a great place to end. And, and thank you for, for joining us today and sharing, uh, you know, I think a genuinely sort of inspiring message about what we need to do and, and what some of the possibilities are in the situation we're in and, and making sure we come out, you know, even stronger and more committed to, uh, to making sure everyone belongs. So uh, I really appreciate you being here today, Camille. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, John.